Welcome to the now playing Halloween retrospective series. Only trying to give America a good show. Hosted by Stuart. I spent eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up. Arnie. I prayed that he would burn in hell, but in my heart, I knew that hell would not have him. And Brock. One must remember not to be fooled by his calm, unassuming facade. You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare, huh? At NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can find reviews of every installment in the Halloween movie series. These eyes will deceive you. A warning. These conversations will be spoiler-filled, and as the movies are R-rated, there may be some objectionable language. Every other word you say is either hell or shit or damn. Listener discretion is advised. Trick-or-treat, motherfucker! Today we're talking about Halloween, starring Jamie Lee Curtis, Judy Greer, Will Patton, Virginia Gardner, Nick Castle, Haluk Bilgeiner, Toby Huss, James Jude Courtney, and introducing Andy Matichak. This is the podcaster who has peanut butter on his penis. This is Brock. And Stuart, this is Arnie, and... Eight more days till Halloween, Halloween, <laughs> Halloween, eight more days till Halloween, we're doing this early. <laughs> 40th anniversary! Wow, we did it! We did it! We got here back! 40 years since we watched the original Halloween! Wait a minute. It feels <laughs> that long. You know, the Now Playing Curse is almost done. If they could ever get Jason out of litigation, then we could finally break the long-standing Now Playing Curse we had where every franchise we did died. I got news for you. With the box office success of this new Halloween, they're all coming back. Every damn one of them. All of a sudden, those two parties who are suing over Jason, they're going to settle out of court right now just to get some more Blumhouse money. But yes, Halloween. I can't believe it that it took so damn long to get this back on our schedule. We thought for sure that we'd be discussing Halloween 3D just a couple years after we did Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. Rob Zombie had said, fuck it, I'm not coming back. But Halloween 3D... They had Patrick Lucier to direct it, and the Weinstein Company ran out of money. <laughs> yeah, we know about their problems. Yeah. Well, this was back in 09. It was shut down because they ran out of money. Mm. So they had a script. They were ready to roll. They were done with Zombie. I was done with Zombie. If you guys remember, I loved Rob Zombie's movies. Halloween 2. I have waited so long to get this off my chest on the podcast because we were discussing how maybe that movie could have been better than what we saw in theaters. Maybe Laurie Strode was supposed to be the killer. It was rushed. That was the one thing. Rob Zombie was at the premiere. I was at the premiere. And he didn't hide the fact that he had been rushed in the editing room. And they really put this one out fast. So, yeah, if they had more time to have a director's cut, it's better. They put out a director's cut. It's the only one available on Blu-ray. You cannot get the theatrical cut unless you get a DVD copy. 
And I was so excited because I love Rob Zombie's Halloween so much that to be able to see his vision realized for Halloween 2, I could not wait. It is the worst, ugliest fucking Halloween movie. It is worse than the theatrical cut. Everything good about the theatrical cut is gone. Laurie Strode, Scout Taylor Compton is just an unlikable person. And then you listen to the commentary. I remember at the end, we were thinking maybe Michael wasn't in that cabin. Maybe it was all Laurie. Mm -hmm. And the last shot is Laurie in the insane asylum. Rob Zombie clarified on the commentary, yeah, she wasn't really supposed to be in the insane asylum. That's the last thing she saw before her brains were blown out. Oh. Oh, that's what he does to characters. They usually do get shut down by the end of the film. That seems in keeping. But I was right. It was all. Oh. It was really Michael. And in that little cabin, the cops kill Michael. They kill Laurie. Loomis is killed too. Everyone is dead. Fuck you. Goodbye. Credits roll. Zombie out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's why I'm glad that he is not back. I can say I'm very excited that Halloween is back, but it wouldn't feel the same if we were watching H3O or Rob Zombie 3. I wouldn't want those. It's interesting to me, though, how this movie came about, because how many shitty Children of the Corn and shitty... Hellraiser films have we reviewed? Well, we're doing another one next week. (laughs) I mean, it's endless. Way to plug it, Arnie. Way to plug it. (laughs) Well, the reason I bring up Children of the Corn and Hellraiser is they specifically matter. It's because they were all dimension properties at that time. And I kept mentioning every time a new piece of shit was put out on Dimension Extreme that they were doing it to keep the rights. They couldn't get their shit together for Halloween. They lost the rights because they did not put out a sequel in time. And then the rights reverted back to Miramax. And that confused me. I'm like, wait, Dimension's rights reverted to Miramax. That kind of hurt my head because Dimension used to be Miramax. Mm -hmm. So the Weinstein company took Dimension and took the rights that Dimension had, but then lost it back to Miramax, which... News to me is no longer owned by Disney. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that in the opening credits here. They say Miramax. I'm like, ooh, scandal. And then they're like, nope, it's a different company. No Weinstein involvement. Disney actually sold Miramax back in 2010. It went to a holding company, which then sold it to Be In Media. I think those are people who just wrote a big check so they could be in media. Yeah. But they lost the rights. That's what happens if they can't pump one out. So it finally got to this Miramax and Miramax decided to see what Blumhouse could do because Blumhouse, they're good at just cranking out endless amounts of horror. Some good the purge some not so good paranormal activity yeah if you were looking for the studio that specialized in this kind of stuff it makes sense to go to jason blum and see what he can do he knows a lot of different people not just horror people i think it's interesting that he you know with his ethan hawk connection and just working with low budget directors of all variety he can pull people that aren't normally in the horror genre into the horror genre. He said that that was one of the techniques he likes to do, and they certainly did that this time. Do you guys know David Gordon Green? No, I don't. Should we know him from something recently? I knew him because at the start of the millennium, he was touted as the next Terrence Malick or Wes Anderson. He was a little tiny indie director who made these precious movies that had almost no plot. They were just kind of pencil sketches. One was called George Washington. It got a lot of buzz at Sundance. It was about a little black boy that becomes a superhero in his mind at the local pool and undertow. It was set on a pig farm in Georgia. They were just stories about people that usually don't 
don't get movies about them. And then Rock, one of your early now playing reviews is one of his films. I mean, didn't you review Pineapple Express? Yes, we did. Pineapple Express. And I saw his follow up to that, Your Highness. And that's haven't heard anything from him since then. So you can understand why I forgot who he was. But sure. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly where the Danny McBride connection comes in. Pineapple Express. Yeah, his career became something totally different when he met James Franco, Danny McBride, and did more commercial comedies. <laughs> commercial to a point. Have you seen Your Highness? It is not commercial. <laughs> no, I only saw the first films, and it was very surprising that he went in that direction and made things I didn't want to see. The only time I paid attention to him again was that his name was attached to the remake of Suspiria. He had nabbed Natalie Portman, and they were going to make that film, and she was busy doing ballet lessons, and when that fell apart she went and took that and made black swan instead and he went back to make little indie films and the only one of those that i've seen was an al pacino movie this summer because we were doing that retrospective i've been trying to see everything al ever made he made this little film about a locksmith called manglehorn that it's kind of like pacino's version of about smith it's okay when I heard about this movie coming, I was immediately worried. I didn't know the director's name, but I know Danny McBride. And so I'm like, this guy? Really? You're bringing him to Halloween? Well, fuck it. I'm going to make Halloween 2 look good, I guess. Well, everyone has multiple sides. It's worth pointing out Danny McBride was in that last Alien movie. Nobody knew why. No, but... I asked that then too. <laughs> but what we can find out is that people that are known for pothead comedies and goofball shtick often want to do something else. And Jason Blum is going to give them that opportunity. And the trick really was, how do we get Jamie Lee Curtis back? Which is kind of why this is an event. Not only is it Laurie Strode versus Michael Myers, but it's Jamie Lee Curtis 20 years after the 20th anniversary anniversary that we all wanted to be a great Halloween movie. And I went back to it. It's not as good as I remembered it being. We've wanted this, though. We've wanted to see a great pairing of Laurie and Michael for 40 years. This had a lot of cachet with me, and I know a lot of people were excited. The person I know who was most excited is Jason, who does a lot of help with the show, posts online a lot for us. You'll see him on our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. And he's with us now because he went to someplace I wish I could have gone, the Halloween 40th anniversary convention in Pasadena. Hello, Jason. Hey, gentlemen. Nice to see you. Looking at this movie, we're talking about the excitement for it. How excited were you for H4O? Which, by the way, was a title that they were using. <laughs> they just never put it on a poster. Yes. I remember seeing the first Instagram post. It was a picture of Jamie Lee Curtis standing outside what looked like the Myers house with Michael Myers in the background. That was last September, and I just freaked out. I could not believe they actually got Jamie Lee back. That was the one thing that shocked me the most. When they announced David Gordon Green and Danny McBride were involved... So I was very much looking forward to it. Yeah, and I was looking forward to being in L.A. and going to this Halloween con where it looks like they brought everyone back that they could. It Maybe not Jamie Lee Curtis, but just about anyone else that had ever been involved in a Halloween movie descended upon Pasadena. Man, it made me wish I was still living in L.A. It was great. It was one of the best times I've ever had. I went to the 35th anniversary convention a few years ago. There was no movie to announce. They've been doing these conventions every five years, I guess, since 2003 since the 25th anniversary. This would be, of course, the first one that they've had where they have a film coming out. So there was a lot of promotion for the film. They did manage to get back cast and crew from just about every single movie with the exception of, well, the director of H2O and the 
stuntman who played Michael Myers was there, but nobody else from H2O. And from Halloween Resurrection, they got the stuntman who played Michael Myers, Brad Laurie, but he was the only person from Resurrection. Did you get to see it there? Did they have a screening early? I did. It was a surprise, maybe about a week before the show. I had bought a VIP ticket. They sent out an email to VIP ticket holders, said, guess what? We're going to have a screening on Friday night at midnight. We all lined up Friday night and we went in there. Malik Akkad, who is now in charge of the series, he spoke to the audience before they rolled it. And then we watched the movie. And the experience for me, it had been built up so much that by the time it was over, I couldn't even remember what happened. It was just, I was watching the movie. I was so excited that it was almost an out-of-body experience for somebody who'd been waiting so long for a new Halloween film. I think I feel that way about every midnight screening of every Star Wars <laughs> film I went to, too. You're just so excited to be there, but you wake up the next morning and don't remember it. We've all had that experience of like, I need to see it again now so I can actually understand what I saw. Exactly. I saw it about four days later, and it was all fantastic. And I saw it again last night, and uh, it was great again. So there you are with all the people in the know. Uh, what was the best moment for you where you had an epiphany or got to meet someone you had always wanted to meet? The first night of the convention, they had an after party. We walk outside and Malik Akkad was out there. And I asked him a little bit about the process getting to this point. And he had talked about the struggle to make a Halloween 3 following up on Rob Zombie. At one point, Malik Akkad said that they had a chance to do the movie for, I don't think he quoted me a budget, but it must have been very low, to do the movie in Serbia. And I thought for a second what it would mean to have a Halloween movie shot in Serbia on a no budget along the lines of a Dawn of the Dead Bloodline or any Children of the Corn film. And I thought about how horrible that would be to feel that that had been done to my Halloween series. And to know that they took their time away from that and they were able to get Jamie Lee back. They got a director who had not done horror before, but had a lot of talent in him. I like David Gordon Green for a little show he did on Amazon called Red Oaks. It's a very nice show. It only got a few seasons, but I really liked it a lot. And I like Danny McBride for many of the reasons that you mentioned, Arnie, but I also kind of felt he could do this. I think they could get together and they could make a scary movie. I do think that they had a lot of dimensions to them, and I was very excited. Well, Jason, thanks for sharing some of your excitement. Before we let you go... Do you recommend Halloween 2018? Uh, yes, I really enjoyed the movie. I give it a high recommend. And I honestly feel they made probably the best sequel in terms of the look of the film and the casting of the film. The, and I really think just the plot and the writing. The best sequel, it did not bother me at all after I'd watched the movie and loved it that the Star Wars legend, the rest of the uh, series, you know, the continuity had just disappeared. Yeah, that's the big thing about this one, is that in order to get Lori back, it means no Halloween 2 through 8. Oh, it's the fifth freaking Halloween timeline. Do you guys realize that? No. Because you had the Halloween timeline that covered movies 1 through Curse of Michael Myers. Mm -hmm. But Halloween 3 isn't really in that timeline, because in Halloween 3, the Halloween movies are movies. So that's a second alternate reality. But then with H2O, they rebooted it so that it was only basically parts 1, 2, and now you're jumping to H2O, so you're in a third reality. Rob Zombie rebooted the whole thing to a fourth reality, and now we're to a only Halloween 1 exists fifth reality. It makes Star Wars look concise. Yeah, well, it does mean something if Halloween fans can be comfortable with anyone marginalizing the bulk of the franchise. They pointed it out from one of the panels. One of the producers said that Halloween is a very much choose your own adventure series. And so you can have love for 
any of the timelines and it doesn't discount any of the other ones. I don't get upset about remakes. It doesn't mean that the first one didn't ever happen. And I'm just happy to have more Halloween movies out there. And so you're saying it's your second favorite. I would say it's my second favorite. My favorite is actually the first Halloween too. I do actually like that film more than the first one. As far as the anticipation goes, I may not have been as excited as Jason, but I was really looking forward to this film. It's been a long time. We've done a lot of newer horror franchises, but it's been a long time since we've been able to cover a slasher. It's been a long time since a slasher series was in theaters, and I had a hard time getting this. They added screens here in Springfield because nobody knew how big this movie would freaking open. I tried to go Thursday night. The theater I wanted to go to was sold out. I wanted to go Friday night. The seven o'clock showing at the theater I wanted to go to was sold out. I finally got a chance to see this in a sold out showing on a Saturday afternoon. And the person sitting next to me was the best person you could sit. Well, Marjorie, of course, but on the other side was the best person. It was the most stereotypical horror person. They brought a blanket to hide under every time. Start playing. She'd cover her head. There'd be one of those fake jump scares. She'd scream. So I got that chance to see if it worked for the most frightened horror fan of all time. I went to a Friday night show. The theater was completely packed full of all sorts of horror fans. And Arnie, I have to contest you. I sat next to the world's greatest person to sit next to during a horror movie. This woman I sat next to, she's about 50, 55 years old. On the, her other side was her young daughter, I'd say late 20s. And this woman was into it so much and so scared at every jump and was saying things like, I can't believe I'm here, I can't believe I'm here. And she got so scared at one point, she held my hand. I was trying to write <laughs> notes. She grabbed the hand I had with my pen on, trying to write notes, and she grabbed it, and then she put her head on my shoulder, burying her face in my shoulder. It was hysterical. And throughout the course of the movie, I realized that her daughter was really into it, explaining to her that this is a callback to the original movie, this and this and that. So the daughter and I became friends as well during the course of the movie. That's the kind of theater I saw it in. Everyone was into it, cheering. When Michael Myers came in with the mask, everyone started clapping. It was a really great opportunity to see it in a room full of fans, but the lady I sat next to really made the experience unique. Yeah, I mean, I think we're all saying the same thing. Big sellout crowds. I went twice. And yeah, I, because I booked early, I was able to get a seat. But there wasn't one if you showed up five minutes before. I guess people are going to be okay with ignoring Halloween 2 through 8 because this thing is going to make more in this opening weekend than 2 through 8 ever did. I mean, this thing is going to hit close to $80 million in the United States alone. It's obviously the biggest film of the entire franchise. And I saw it Thursday night, and then I saw it again Saturday, and I think I had the best person to go with because I took <laughs> my mother, who is, as you may recall, the person who woke me up in the middle of the night after her viewing of the original Halloween at home on cable to say Michael Myers was breaking into the house because she had accidentally unplugged her lamp. And if you don't remember that story, check out the snippet we post on October 31st on our YouTube channel. We went, we watched Halloween 1978, and then I watched the new one. I did not want any other Halloweens in my head, and I wanted to see the direct parallels and what they were gaining, really, by not having all of that other connectivity. Because you forget what doesn't appear in Halloween, namely the familial connection between Laurie Strode, Michael Myers. They are not brother and sister. This movie will underline that fact. Why do that? What does it mean? How does it change the relationship? Watched it that way, 
And then after the second viewing, I was like, what are we losing? I did go back and I watched Halloween 2, Halloween H2O, and the first 10 minutes of Resurrection just to see every other performance that Jamie Lee Curtis has contributed to the franchise to say, am I okay with this new movie in some way erasing or marginalizing those works? I find it so easy to forget that it's Halloween 2 that made the sibling connection because when I watch Halloween, I often watch the cut that includes all of the TV footage, the extra scenes they shot so they could air on network television and have enough run length. And those scenes have them discussing the familial relationship, which kind of makes it a little bit more difficult to go with Dr. Loomis's shock in part two when he's told. So yeah, it does take that away. I did rewatch some Halloween movies. I wanted to rewatch every Halloween movie before seeing this. I ran out of time. So I was able to watch one, two, three, and then H2O. Those are the ones that I got in. Because, you know, I think having Season of the Witch fresh in my mind was very vital to going into sure. seeing this. <laughs> Most essential Halloween of the series. I actually did what Stuart did. I stuck to the original one knowing that the history was all wiped clean. And I'm very happy I did. I watched the original Halloween two days before I saw the new one. So I was able to catch all of the references, all the homages, the duplicated shots, the whole thing. And I want to ask, knowing that we're continuity Nazis. Some of us really like this franchise. Are we okay just going in ahead of time without knowing the quality of the new movie? I know Alien. They really talked about bringing back Sigourney and saying Alien 3 on never happened. Are we okay with that just as a concept? Listen, we cover franchises here at Now Playing. We've seen it all, right? We've seen sequels. We've seen the sequels that try to forget the one that came before. We've seen the sequels that we're going to tell the exact same story as the one before, but we're going to replace the actor with a cheaper actor. We've seen continuations. We've seen complete reboots. And we've seen we're going to forget some of the sequels already when we saw H2O. I think it's possibly the best way to go. Here's what I've noticed as we've covered reboots. There has not been a rebooted series that has been able to captivate audiences the way the original did. Everything you're doing is beholden to either the first or the first couple of films. And then everything after that is playing on that nostalgia. And so rather than try to keep that convoluted continuity with films that people didn't like, didn't see, don't remember ever coming out. Yeah, this is, I think, the next great thing. Stop rebooting. Let's re-sequel. Well, this is another one of those sequels that's really a hybrid of a remake. This is just like Jurassic World is exactly the same thing with Jurassic Park. So to ignore all the stuff that we didn't like, to basically tell us the original story to launch a new series, which is what they all ultimately want, I think that they need to do that to give it some place to go, but at the same time, bring people back to the series and bring new people to it. So I'm a fan in this situation of ignoring the bad stuff and getting back to basics, but I don't think it works every single time. I do also think that young audiences just don't go back anymore. They don't care that there was an original Halloween 40 years ago that had Michael Myers and the exact same plot and all this kind of stuff. A lot of them just don't care. So for them, it doesn't matter. So they can just wipe it clean. It's interesting that they called this Halloween. It's the third time we've had a movie called Halloween. We had the original, then we had Rob Zombie's remake, and now we have this and yeah, a lot like you said with Jurassic World and The Force Awakens and things, 
I knew coming in, I had my suspicions. I was spoiler free except for the trailers, but I had my suspicion that what this was going to be was almost a remake and you were going to have Laurie Strode as Dr. Loomis because she was going to be the old person running around. She's the exact same age, 59 years old when making this as Donald Pleasance was when making the first Halloween movie. I find that to be a wonderful parallel there. I thought she'd be going around going, he's unstoppable. He's so evil. And that he would stalk new teenagers. I was a little bit off in what her role would be. I underestimated the importance that they would put of the Laurie Strode character to the story, but I thought this would be one of those kind of softer reboot retellings. And what I'll say right now they did right is there's a lot of callbacks to Halloween one. I mean, there's so many shots repeated. There's scenes repeated. We'll talk about them as we go through, but all of them are done in such a way that you don't have to know the original for the scene to work. It just adds a little bit of spice if you do know that it's a callback. And I'm going to argue, I think the reason not to use the sequel too is this feels like the same story. This feels like the rest of the story. We left on a cliffhanger. We took an intermission. It happened to last 40 years, but then we came back and watched the rest of the same movie. That's what I think they're going for. I'm excited. That gave me hope. All right, well, then let's get into it. We're all excited. We all want to know what happens in Halloween H4O. Michael Myers has been locked in a mental institution for most of his life. Incarcerated at six years old, he spent 55 years in Smith's Grove Sanitarium. He was only out for one night. 40 years ago, in 1978, he escaped and killed four people and nearly killed Jamie Lee Curtis's character of Laurie Strode before his psychiatrist, Dr. Loomis, helped capture him and return him to the mental hospital. But now it's 2018. Loomis is dead. Myers is under the psychiatric care of Dr. Sartin, Loomis's former assistant. And Myers is finally being transferred out of Smith Grove into a maximum security prison. And because they have no idea of history nor irony, they decide to do this on October 30th. And again, the bus crashes. And again, Michael escapes, killing several people as he steals a pickup truck, some mechanics coveralls, and begins indiscriminately killing adults and teens in Haddonfield. After him is Officer Frank Hawkins, played by Will Patton, a cop who worked for Sheriff Bracken when Myers escaped in 78. He and Sarton drive around looking for Myers. But also on the hunt is Laurie Strode, again played by Curtis. Strode has been traumatized by the attacks in 1978 and has lived a survivalist lifestyle. Two marriages failed, and she's estranged from her daughter Karen, played by Judy Greer, and her teenage daughter Allison, played by Andy Matichek. When word of Michael's escape gets out, Lori races to Haddonfield gun-ready, both hunting Michael and also trying to get her daughter and granddaughter to her underground safe room to hide from Myers. She gets Karen, but Allison is missing at a school Halloween dance, her phone destroyed by her cheating boyfriend Cameron. But Sitarin is loving what's happening. This is the first time Michael's been animated in 40 years. So Sitarin kills Officer Hawkins and drives Michael out to Strode's house, where Michael kills him. Michael then goes into Lori's house, following Allison, who got there just in time for the climax. Lori shoots Michael and attacks him repeatedly, even blowing off a couple of his fingers with a shotgun, but still Michael persists in attacking them. He rips open the secret entrance to Lori's safe room, but it was never really a safe room, it was a trap. They get Michael in it, close the bars, and set Lori's house ablaze. The three strode women watch from the street as the house burns, presumably with Michael still in the basement, as credits roll. 
Those gorgeous orange font credits, right from the get-go, they're telling us we want you to remember the way that it was. Yeah, we just get, though, basically Universal's logo, Blumhouse's logo, all the damn film studios' logos. We do not get our pumpkin credits, which we will get. We talked in the previous shows about how many times we saw the pumpkin, but we're actually going to start off at Smith's Grove Sanitarium with a subplot that I find so irrelevant, I didn't even bring it up in the plot summary about two podcasters who decide they want to provide all the exposition necessary for us to know what happened in 1978. But, you know, there is some precedent for this. Serial. You know, that was the one that really caught the imagination a couple years ago. That's what they do. They look at an old case and find new angles to why people got convicted and should they be free. And that was the murder mystery of choice. It is the way that People consume history about true crime events and movies. And so it makes sense that they would care more than anyone else that Michael was being transferred and that they want to stage a reunion. Their real idea is that we are going to get a reaction caught. First, we'll just present him with a mask. And if that doesn't work, we'll talk to Lori Strode and see if we can get her to come and say whatever she's got on her mind to Michael Myers. And I have to say, I love the idea of how to reintroduce all these old characters and modernizing everything at the same time. This was a nice conceit of the movie. And also, the last thing I like about these two people is that when they do die, we do have a connection to them because most people in this movie, we do have a little bit more connection to than the average horror movie. And we used to, we spent a little bit more time with these two, especially. So when they did get killed, I was surprised they got killed so early. So I really did enjoy this aspect that very few people, except when Michael goes on his killing spree, we have a connection to. So I did, they did a lot of things right with this opening to give us the history and to get us into the modern age. I would agree with you if they had more of a purpose. I think that they could have tightened this up because we're introduced to three characters, all of whom I dislike here at the beginning. I'm going to just put this out there. I like this movie. I like this movie, but it opens really weak and it's got some writing issues. And these three characters, you've got the two podcasters, Aaron and Dana, and this Dr. Sartain, who is there to take them out on this gorgeously shot checkerboard pattern yard where Michael gets to soak up the sun. I think it's well shot the way that they tease his face. We get to see he's an older man, but we're still not going to get to look at his face. But this Dr. Sartan, he really bugs me too, because we don't need a Loomis. And yet here you are, the Loomis, who's transferring him again and doing all this talking. I think this could have been so much better if they'd combined the podcaster storyline and Dr. Sartan's I want to see him go do these things storyline. I realize it's hewing a little bit Busta Rhymes that we want to have Michael kill people for our internet show, but I could have understood these podcasters who want the exposure and want the hits and downloads driving Michael out to Lori's house more than I could ever understand why the psychiatrist does what he does. Get rid of the psychiatrist. The podcasters do everything the psychiatrist does. Including wanting to kill for themselves to feel what it feels like? That's a stupid fucking thing. No, like <laughs> kill so that you can get Michael out to Strode's house. I think every scene with Sartan in it, with the exception of the one where he gets shot, is not a good scene. <laughs> Well, they want to have a Loomis character, and I think it's right to start with this guy incarcerated. What we will learn by jettisoning everything that happened Halloween 2 through 8 is later that night, Loomis was about to kill 
Michael. He wasn't going to bring him back to the institution. There was another deputy that was there that stopped that, and he was brought back and has been cared for by the state. And yeah, now he is being dumped to a private institution. It's a kind of commentary on privatization and maybe healthcare in general in America right now. It's subtle dig. So this is a rare moment of him in transference that they're trying to capture him in. I also think it's kind of a cool way of doing this. We've seen this a lot since Silence of the Lambs, which kind of made it look like a dungeon. If you got to go see the serial killer, you're going into the basement. I think what they're telling us is that Michael is using these guys like chess pieces. They are his pawns, that he has a, a name to get out of here. And I think, really, from very early on, that he and Sartain are in cahoots. The reason why the bus accident will happen is because they, in tandem, are working to put Michael back in the wild. This psychologist is so concerned about what he might be like when he's in the wild that he's willing to put lives at risk. I wish that they'd put that in the movie. It's pretty there, and we'll talk about it when he pulls out his penknife, but it will take a long time. Yeah. When Aaron, the podcaster, pulled out the Michael Myers mask, clearly to me, having the mask out in that field was so the audience knows when Michael gets it later how he got it. Because otherwise, how else would he conveniently get this mask? Right. Yeah, they're here if for no other reason that they need to deliver that mask. Yeah, I think they picked it up off the zombie set. It looks far more like zombies mask than it does the one from the first movie. Where would they even get that mask? Uh, from the DA's office. Okay. They went back into the actual court case. And they just let them have the mask? They pulled a favor. Podcasters have juice. Oh, yeah. I call up the DA all the time. And they have $3,000 to give people to have an interview. We all know that's true, too. And everybody else in the yard but Michael reacts and hoots and hollers to the majesty or the evil that's coming off of the mask. What did you get from that? And how does that fit in? To me, that is the question of the movie. We're being presented with a psychological diagnosis but is it as simple as the boogeyman? I mean, that is certainly where Lori is still at. You guys want to find new insights? There are no new insights. This is evil, and that's all that it is. Does it originate from the mask? Well, it originates from something called the shape. She'll use that term finally. It's incorporated in the movie. One thing I'm watching is, could a 61-year-old man be doing the things that Michael is going to do? Are they going to keep it realistic, or will he survive injuries that no human being could do? Will he do incredible feats that make him superhuman? That, again, tell us that he is pure evil and not just a damaged mind. Michael has always been the shape. He, especially as Carpenter viewed him, he doesn't talk, he doesn't have motivation, he just kills. I think this version of Halloween gets back to that a lot better, but anytime you want to talk about him strategizing and things, it actually goes against that. Later on, Sartan is going to say something that I kind of like. Michael only knows two things. Keep moving and keep killing. You know, it's, he's like a shark. The shark, they say, if you stop in the water, they'll die. So Michael is a land shark. And so he just keeps going for that reason. He's a force of nature. He's not a character. And so the question becomes, what impact is that force of nature? He's like a Sharknado. We have to know about the people who are impacted by the Sharknado because the Sharknado itself has no soul. And this is where we get those pumpkin credits. He holds up that mask dramatically, wanting something. Michael is giving you nothing. He can play the long game. I'm not going to show you my face. 
And that's the tease of the movie. Are we ever going to see his literal face? And are we ever going to know his mind? We cut to credits that are like the original credits in reverse. I think they have cut the jack-o'-lantern to have the exact same face that it had in 1978. Only it's time-lapse from the rot back to its life again. It is literally a resurrection, as it were. You know, anytime something like this comes up, I always think of Drax from Guardians of the Galaxy. I just went, metaphor. <laughs> the, this series is coming back to what it used to be. We're bringing it back from the rot where it's been until it's a good pumpkin again. I had it as evil was reborn. Evil is coming back. So exactly. Also, what really bothered me about that cutting of the jack-o'-lantern from the original one is they had that little slit from the nose down to the mouth. Yes, that bothered me too. And, and here it's really pronounced. <laughs> and it really made me even more angry. Folks, it's really easy to cut the mouth without using the slit. But, you know, this is not how to make a jack-o'-lantern podcast. We'll stop there. <laughs> but did you think in seeing it this time and we pull in so close, is it supposed to resemble a knife? With the slit being where it's at, that was the handle to a knife blade. You know, Stuart, there's a metaphor and then there's just reaching. Yeah. And so <laughs> Again, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. I mean, they're baiting us. Am I reading too much into this? Is there a psychological interpretation? <laughs> and because Dana and Aaron didn't get what they wanted with what they thought was a huge, like, wow, we got the original mask, putting it right in his face and he's going to have to do something. Well, let's see what $3,000 buys us with Lori Strode. And Lori has gone full Sarah Connor in this continuity. I kind of like it. You know, I think having rewatched H2O and watching this, you could go two different ways. I mean, 20 years after you're attacked, I'm positive that with therapy and with some work, you could lead a very normal life and you could be the headmaster of a school or without that therapy. And if you want to go the other way, you could become this total survivalist living on the fringes of society and the fringes of town. Yeah, Jamie Lee, it's uh, striking. When we see her, she's outfitted like no time has passed. It looks like the same blouse. It's the same haircut. Obviously, she's gone gray. She looks a little bit like John Carpenter and a lot like Medea and Boo. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen a lot of photo shoots where the hair looks better, but in real life, she has very short hair. So I'm pretty sure this is just an unflattering fright wig. You know, I look at this scene and I feel like the whole movie kind of has... I guess I'll call it a problem. They don't want to do what the original did with editing. They want it to cut faster. I wanted to linger on this moment. This is the first time we're talking with Lori Strode, and she's going to be giving some kind of opinion about what's happened to her. And I feel like it happens really fast. Like, I want to linger with her. And in general, this movie won't spend enough time with Jamie Lee Curtis as much as I would like to. I'll agree with that. I understood that this movie in its original cut, not like the work print cut where they assembled everything, but after they cut it, it was still like two hours and 15 minutes long and they decided they had to go back in, make it shorter, and I didn't have a fear of mine realized. Rewatching H2O, I remember how terribly boring that first hour is before stuff happens, whereas John Carpenter was able to have suspense. I thought this film might follow that pattern. They don't. They cut to the quick faster. But if I was the podcaster offering a $3,000 for an interview and you gave me like three answers and then showed me the door and then asked for the money, here's a hundred bucks. Thanks for your time. I think she should have provided more answers and this would have been a good time. I know movies like to show, not tell, but I think you could have told us a little bit more. Specifically because that first movie to me feels so much the subtext being about her fear of men. Okay, so she had kids? 
And yeah, they were taken away from her. But what was that husband like? When did she get pregnant? I mean, in order for this generational thing to work, it would have been shortly after these attacks. What was that man like? I mean, I can imagine why it didn't work out. I thought it might be Ben Tramer. I was hoping for a Ben Tramer <laughs> drop. <laughs> right. But again, we have a lot of questions. And you're right. This movie could make the mistake. And I will second Arnie. It was a mistake for H2O to go and give the floor so much to Jamie Lee Curtis's anxieties. But there's a happy medium there. And I would have just liked more in this beginning because I like Jamie Lee Curtis. And I think we're owed an explanation for what might have happened in the last 40 years. Completely agree. I just find this scene to be very perfunctory. I wanted more from it and then i don't necessarily like where we jump next which is we've now been introduced to the fact that Lori has a daughter now we're going to see it's judy greer who we talk about her so often and every time i'm like why are people hiring judy greer so much i don't dislike judy greer are you sure i am sure i don't know anymore <laughs> i used to believe you and now i'm like no you hate that bitch i don't hate her I just don't get it. I don't see the appeal of why you make her. I mean, she's in Ant-Man twice. She's in two Jurassic World films. I'm happy for her. But why is she the right actress for this role? Because she embodies sweetness. And this is a character that rejects the paranoia of what Laurie Strode has become. I think a lot of this comes from Arrested Development, if you ever watched that show, and she showed a lot of different sides of herself on that show, which also in this movie kind of come in handy. Yes, and some of the examples you gave, Ant-Man, she's not really showing us all that much except one character, one aspect of what she can do. Here, we're able to see a whole bunch of stuff, and I think it's kind of neat. I think for this movie, she actually worked quite well. I was quite happy Judy Greer was cast in this role. I think one of my problems with her is I can never lose her in a role. I can never look, and I lose... Jamie Lee Curtis in this role to Laurie Strode. I have no idea who Allison's actress is, so I lose her to Allison, but it's constantly in my notes, Laurie, Allison, and Judy Greer. <laughs> yeah, Karen is rejecting, as most children do, rejecting the teachings of her parents. She lost Laurie at 12, the state took her away, and so she went and got healed. You know, she had a life of touting guns and taking knives to mannequins. She lived the life that her mother taught her, and then she rejected that life, and now she is trying to be healed by being a therapist and embracing love, and it seems to be a characterization that the film doesn't have a lot of love for. We are to think that she is very naive and deserves the wrath of Michael Myers because she hasn't protected her family from what is a known threat. I don't know why the granddaughter, Allison, is so in wanting to connect with Lori. That was the kind of strange thing to me, was why does she feel like she wants her there? She's going to an honor society event that night, and she wants to make sure grandmother is invited, even though her mother has clearly kept grandmother away, and Lori is a bit of an agoraphobic. I think there's some truth to the fact that she probably doesn't leave her complex that often for awards dinners. But what is it about the youngest generation that wants to disobey her mother and go back to grandmother? Doesn't every generation want to disobey their mother at that age? Yeah, but I guess for me, it's weird because I didn't have a strong connection to my grandparents and my parents, we live remotely from them. So if I didn't see my grandparents, I didn't think about them. I was wondering if there was something in her character that made her more like Laurie than Karen. I don't think we get that from the film. 
I think what makes her more like Lori than Karen is she's going to live Lori's day of October 30th and 31st now in 2018. I mean, she's going to go to class and hear a lecture about fate, just like Lori Strode did, and look out the window and see a creepy person standing there stalking them. Only this time it's Lori instead of Michael. And you know what? If my mom gave me nothing but shit and lies and my grandmother was giving me $3,000 to go on a cruise, I think I'd hang out with grandma a bit more. True. And Arnie, did you pick up that she was sitting in the exact same seat as Jamie Lee Curtis when she saw Michael Myers through the window all those years before? Exactly the same classroom, exactly the same seat, in the exact same shop. Same subject matter. We've had problems with that. I mean, this can go too far. We are all on the record, I think, with Star Trek Into Darkness as saying, when you ride that too heavy, it becomes to taste like an in-joke that isn't funny. Here, I think it's the point of the movie. The reason why I actually really like it is because to think that the victim has become, in some ways, the victimizer is a fascinating idea. That if you are touched by evil and traumatized, you can actually become part of the problem if you don't get healed. Could Laurie Strode be part of the problem now? Yeah, I agree with that. And like I said before, though, I want to drive this point home. If you don't catch the references, and I did, I'm really glad I watched Halloween beforehand because so many shots are identical. But if you didn't get that that's the same seat and same topic and same everything as before... It works in the context of this movie. I feel like H2O, The Force Awakens, and Star Trek Into Darkness, and so many other films make references that only work if you know what they're referencing. Here, you could walk into this movie never having seen Halloween, and every scene is as effective. It just isn't going to pull on your heartstrings because you don't realize that you're seeing it before, and it's doing it in a way where they're mixing it up. Like, I agree with you completely, Stuart. It feels fresh, and it doesn't feel like they're just ripping it off and making it a punchline. Danny McBride knew coming in that this entire crew had some credibility issues doing Halloween because of the material they came from. And his rule was, we don't make a single joke until the killing really starts. There's not a lot of scares. There's not a lot of jumps. There's certainly not a lot of laughs. So they're not poking fun at themselves. They're not undermining their own horror by being like, aren't we cute doing what we did 40 years later? And the first kill could be Michael because Lori is going to be waiting for him. He is being boarded on that bus and going to Glass Hill Asylum. They're moving them at night again on October 30th again. Who are these freaking civil servants? They're in Illinois. We need to cut their budget. No, I think there's actually maybe a motive here if Dr. Sartan may be engineering all of this. He is conducting a social experiment in which he is recreating the night that Loomis had so that he can know what he knows about Michael to be true. There have been lots of people that have all dealt with Michael and none of them came to the conclusion he was pure evil. And the reason was they all saw him in a white room that was padded with him in a straitjacket and said, no, he's just a damaged child. I love the voiceover of Loomis. It goes more further than Pleasance ever did. He must be killed, and then we must destroy the body quickly. <laughs> yeah, I kind of agree with Allison's friends here. It's like, oh, he killed three people. I mean, that's not good, but we get so much more than that on a weekly basis coming out of high schools. 
Is he the shape of evil anymore? Is he that maniacal when you have mass murders occurring all over the country? That whole scene was about putting things in context for this modern audience, calling out the elephant in the room and modernizing blah, blah, blah. The entire thing was kind of like a data dump until he blew up the pumpkin. I did not like that scene at all. So you're saying it's a good thing they call it out and you kind of agree with him. For me, I couldn't get past that whole, okay, let's get this out of the way now stuff. Because to me, that felt completely like scream that they're calling it out for the audience before they start doing it. Yeah, they did that in H2O and that was 20 years ago. I Here's my problem is I don't really care about the young characters and maybe that's my age. Part of that is definitely going to be that I'm drawn more to Lori than I am Allison. I just don't care about all of that. The fact that Lori thinks that she can ambush a bus. She should have just taken the podcasters up and said, yeah, I'll meet with Michael and brought a shank. <laughs> like that was the way to really handle it if she was going to go at Michael with that way. Yeah, I got something to say to him. Die! <laughs> and the young kids, you say you don't relate to them. I'm going to say it's not your age. I like these characters. I like their storylines, but it is the least interesting thing in this movie is Allison and Allison's friends because- it's like they haven't evolved their writing since I was kept going back to Friday the 13th 3D in so many ways with their love triangles and things. Yeah, there's a couple nods to the kids today where they're going to do gender flipped Bonnie and Clyde costumes. The worst tease ever is we're doing Bonnie and Clyde, but with a twist, hee hee hee, we're not going to tell you. Yeah, of course it's gender flipped. That's not a unique thing right now. I thought they were <laughs> going to be zombies. I thought they were going to be Michael Myers and Laurie Strode. Only then it makes no sense to say we're Bonnie and Clyde. I thought the girl was not going to tell at the table with her parents that she's dressing up as grand grandma and her nemesis from 40 years ago, I thought they were lying about Bonnie and Clyde. Well, that makes sense. I just wish there was more to these teenage characters because when we see things like The Force Awakens or Independence Day Resurgence or any of these where you're trying to continue the old story but pass it to a new generation, there should be a passing of the baton. Laurie Strode is the star here, and I agree with that choice. But I think they should have made Allison an equally strong character because it's Blumhouse. Blumhouse is already planning Halloween 18 now. So where do you take it? How long do you keep Jamie Lee Curtis in this kind of a role? I wish I liked the granddaughter and her friends more. Yeah, it's notable that she has this relationship with Cameron Elam, and he's left alive. Even though they'll have this fight at the Halloween dance, he is left to come back in future sequels. And he has connection to the original. It is mentioned that his dad, Lonnie, is somewhat of a prankster around town. He was the bully that knocked the pumpkin down for poor Tommy when he was coming home. Yeah, you remember Lonnie Get your ass away from there, Loomis, when Lonnie was forced to go up to the house. Yeah, yeah, I guess that did happen as well. But it's implied that he's a bit of a drinker and that the dad, Ray, bought weed or something from him. So there's some concern, I think even in Allison, that Cameron could have some kind of substance abuse problem. And there's storylines here to develop. It's not like they're completely flat characters. I guess I just don't feel like that's the movie I want. The movie I want is much more focused on Lori. And this movie, I think she's only in it about a third of the time. I don't mind having the movies that I grew up on. I'm older than the characters now instead of younger, but I can still look back fondly on those times I had. I just think they don't get anything interesting to do. And this movie, it follows the sin rule so much that Halloween 
did in the early ones. Everybody who's going to die, who's in Allison's clique, there's going to be a lot of bodies that are just wrong place, wrong time. Michael's pretty indiscriminate with his killing, but most of the teenagers he kills, they had sex or they came close to have sex or they invited boys over who shouldn't or they kissed a girl who they shouldn't have. And yet Cameron gets to live when Cameron was the one who really talked up his relationship with Allison and then kissed that Tigra girl at the dance. Yeah, she kissed him and he seemed to like it. And so, yeah, again, this is all teases maybe for a younger audience or for storylines that will be in a sequel that will not have Jamie Lee Curtis. And Jamie Lee Curtis is just paving a way for us to care about these characters. Maybe. All I've got to say is they've got to do a lot more work for Allison next time because I'm not there for her. I'm there for Lori, and I'm there for Michael, who is on a killing spree much earlier than he's ever been before. I kind of like the way they set it up. We go from the family out having dinner and Lori embarrassing herself by being too drunk and crying about the shape and Karen saying, I told you so, to jumping to another family squabble. We don't know who these people are. A father and son. The kid would rather be a dance class. The father wants to go hunting. Do you think that means the director would rather be working on Suspiria? No, I actually think there's a dialogue on here about kind of what's going on with how they frame it as red state, blue state, you know, like living defensively and hunting and having a gun or going to dance class and having fun and and living freely. You see a lot of people making contrasting choices and both die. I mean, it's not like they weigh in specifically and say one way is better to live than another. I took that also, Stuart, as kids nowadays, just because they're boys doesn't mean they have to like hunting. They can like, you know, dancing. I took it as a comment or an acquiescence to the gender fluidity of today's youth in that we're going to have gender-bent costumes, the boyfriend's going to be in drag for the Halloween costume, and now we're going to have this boy who'd rather be in dance class. It all felt like it was trying to squash stereotypical gender roles in its youthful characters. Right, and specifically in slasher movies, because we have a certain way that we think about the boyfriend as opposed to the last girl. But here, they're going to be victims. We all know they're going to be victims because they come screeching to a halt in front of the bus and it has gone off the road and all the patients are just wandering around. And you just know, seeing all those people in white in the fog, that, oh, this is going to be a good one. And the audience was just on the edge of their seat. Well, it's just like that scene in the first film when the bus crashed and all the people in white were wandering around and Loomis and the nurse stumbled upon it. When the guy, the father says, I'm going to get out of the car, the entire audience, almost in unison, was like... No, are you crazy? No, don't do it. It was so much fun. And when this, and the boy did it a few minutes later, we were all like, oh, no, don't do it. So, like, it was funny that the different no that the audience did. But right from this spot, when we knew we were going to get our first kill, the electricity was palpable in my theater. It was uh, really a fun scene. And I caught the references and how it was repeated to the first movie. And this time, when they show us the boy getting killed and they find out later how the father gets killed, you can see that this is... Halloween, but not your dad's Halloween. This is going to be a little more intense with the kills. Yeah, they let you know the gloves are off. Just because someone looks like they're 12 doesn't mean they're protected. And that's good to know early because we didn't know what kind of movie we were going to get. It's a very gentle death, though. I mean, this Michael, more than knives, likes to bash your skull against walls, against windows. He's a big headbanger, this Michael. And yet... This kid, first of all, I was shocked that they killed the kid. I thought for sure that the kid would find the dad dead. I'm proud of the kid for grabbing the gun and not just going out there unarmed. He knew how to use the gun. The dad was teaching him how to hunt. I think that was a smart move. So I wasn't as nervous for him getting out of the car. 
I thought it was really smart when he gets back in the car and is like, screw this, I'm getting out of here. But yeah, we get that little sound effect that we're going to get many times at this movie of, yep, Michael just snapped that neck. And I guess this Michael Myers can drive again? Or Yeah, we're fine with that. If he could do it in the first movie, that was already established. But yeah, by shooting Dr. Sartan, we also aren't thinking about him as the reason why that bus might be. He's a victim. He, you know, when they find him, they're like, oh, he's been shot. Poor guy. It was an accident. It was a goofy, funny jump scare. We don't really spend a lot of time thinking, well, why are all these people free? But it's him. I'm telling you, it was him. No, I believe you because I came to that conclusion late in the movie myself. Otherwise, I was wondering why this bus crashed. I was wondering, did Michael break out or whatever? When Sartan's motivation, as inane as it is, is revealed, it clicks to me that, yes, he had to have done this. And when you watch that scene of him pushing his way onto the bus, Michael is my patient until he's turned over to the cops. He obviously got on there and he used his little super stabby pen to kill a cop. And that's why the bus crashed and he let Michael loose. It's still stupid-ass motivation that would have made more sense for the podcasters to sabotage this bus so that they could get a scoop. I think one of the things this movie says is the more you surround yourself with evil, the more it corrupts you. Lori is the way that she is because she hasn't gotten the help. He spent all of this time giving therapy to this person, and it's made him so curious about psychological motivations for killing that he himself is willing to take this step too far. Aaron and Dana, they're just trying to get a story, and they go to Judith Meyer's grave. Of course, that's where Michael would be, too. I mean, it makes sense that he would be able to find them there and thus track him to the gas station. And again, same camera angle, same graveyard as when Loomis and the caretaker were taken to see Judith Meyer's gravestone had been torn from the ground we're going to recreate that shot here it's the third time because they zombie also recreated that shot with Sid Haig and Malcolm McDowell so again another callback I just these podcasters are taken out very quickly I think they're there also to help the body count for people like me who if we didn't have Michael kill until he got to the babysitters in Haddonfield might feel like this dragged on like H2O. So he's going to kill four or five people at a gas station. And man, when he ripped that guy's jaw off, we don't see the jaw happening. I kept thinking about what Brock said in a couple of podcasts about why does zombie have to show us everything? This is the exact opposite. We just go in. There's a guy's jaw missing. There's a guy in his tidy whities face down in a pool of blood. The only ones we see get it are Aaron and Dana. Yeah, I like that. I mean, I think David Gordon Green is cool with inference. He doesn't always want to show you the thing. He's not Rob Zombie. Rob Zombie wants to show you every whack. And this guy is like, no, I'll just imply it, and it'll mean more when you see it. And I think that's true. I think the attack in the bathroom stall is creepy, because that would be awful. You're taking trying to take a shit in that condition, <laughs> and then someone's knocking on there, and then the hand opens up, and the bloody teeth are falling at your feet. That's creepy. It is. It happened to Joe Grizzly, too, in Rob Zombie's Halloween, though. But yeah, I hate to say it, but it's more impactful when it's a giant man invading a lady's room than a giant man interrupting a trucker taking a shit. Exactly. And also when you have the other guy wandering around the gas station seeing all this stuff as we're seeing it and coming across these bodies, 
it really sets up more suspense instead of showing every little thing. And so also that whole scene with her going underneath the bathroom stalls and trying to avoid getting killed because she knows what's going on. She figures out exactly who that is. I mean, I don't know how she figured it out, but she figured it out and it was frightening. It was wonderful. I honestly lost my attention because it goes on so long. And w when we see... Dana go in. She checks the first stall. It's wretched. It's like the one from Saw. She checks the second stall. It's still gross as hell, which is setting up how nasty it's going to be for her to crawl on the floor later. She gets to the third stall. She's like, okay, this is useful. And then we have these big boots come in and it goes to the first stall and the second stall and then starts shaking the third. And she goes, it's occupied. And I'm thinking, of course, it's Michael. Of course, it's Michael. But we did see this geriatric woman out front while Aaron was filling his gas and he like waves at her and she just stares. Briefly, I thought, what if it's just an old lady with old lady boots who wants to take a shit, too, and they're trying to pull a joke on us? It's when the teeth come that I'm like, all right, we got something happening. Yeah, there are lots of misdirects. They will, in many cases, by cutting to two different moments happening simultaneously, you're wondering, is Michael in this scene or that scene? We're not sure if he's in the closet upstairs or down with the motorbike. Gordon Green knows these are cliches, and he's doing his best to disguise them and goose them up so they're exciting again. I just want to give props to him. I think they are. I think this is a good scene and a good death, and yeah, maybe all it is is filler, but all slasher movies have these kinds of meaningless deaths, and these mean more because I kind of like these characters. They also set up the Michael Myers in the bathroom thing as because she's walking towards it in the background in the, in the window. You see Michael beating somebody to death. Yeah, out of focus. Yeah, and it was really a great way to set up that, oh, he's here too. It was really nicely done. And it's all these murders without a mask. He still doesn't have his mask back. That's, again, something from the first film. I guess he did kill the mechanic to get the coveralls before he went and stole that mask, but... And that answered the question for me. This movie will provide little as far as motive, but it is not the mask. If we thought that the mask was the evil, he is perfectly comfortable and capable of killing in the same way without the mask. He just feels more comfortable in it. It is his skin. And so when he puts it on in broad daylight, he's happy to be whole again. You talked about the various ways that the director plays with perspective. After he gets his mask back, Michael is going to go on a killing spree. We get this Michael Myers POV of the camera walking up to a window of a house at night, and this woman's on the phone. It's a very stalker, voyeur camera shot as we watch through the window, and we wait. What's Michael going to do? Is he going to smash through the window? Michael's going to come in the back door. Michael walked away, but the camera stayed put. At a certain point, the camera pushes forward into the house. We're seeing her take a phone call where she's being warned by this Sally woman that there's a killer on loose. I don't know if it's the same Sally, but this exact same thing happened in Halloween 2. There was a Sally that called someone and said, there's a killer on the loose and this person died. But we see Michael's mask reflection in the window at that point. Okay, yeah, that's why I thought it was a POV shot, yeah. is I thought we were seeing his reflection in that window. And so when he leaves, I think we're still in his POV. So when he walks into what I consider to be his own shot, you know what? If the goal is reaction, you got me. I was like, holy shit, I didn't realize. It's all one take, and he likes long takes, but he was going to kill a sexy nurse, you know, another Halloween 2 joke, I suppose. And then it was like, all right, well, then I'll just walk up to this porch. And that's all one shot. Right, yeah. And it stays one shot as she's taking the call and things. And unless there's some CGI and editing trickery, even him coming in the back door is one shot. Would stabbing the baby be too much? Gotta ask. Uh, yeah, I think so. Rob Zombie would have done it. Right, and Rob Zombie's not here. I don't know if it would have been too much or not. I was wondering if he would, and then I'm left wondering why he didn't. Mm-hmm. 
either way, I think you could have just made it all easier if you didn't have the baby in that house. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you guys noticed, but in a movie full of references to itself, some of the trick-or-treaters are wearing silver shamrock masks. I noticed that later on when Lori is hunting the streets. And again, I I told you, it mattered that I rewatched Halloween 3 for this because I knew my witch, my skeleton, and my pumpkin. (laughs) Yeah. But Michael is ultimately going to end up in the closet of this little boy, Julian. He's there because he knows Vicky is the friend of Allison. Is this the old house? I couldn't see any reason why he chose this. I can't tell why he killed anybody. I don't even know if it's the same neighborhood. Stuart, since we did those last podcasts, I went out to L.A., You drove me to the neighborhood where they did all the Halloween movies. And this guy, he cut down some shrubbery and built up some stuff. He's tired of freaking tourists because it's a real house. A guy's living there and he does not want you taking pictures. Yeah, instantly he knew why we were there. I mean, he could just tell from us walking up the street. He came out there and with arms folded and we were like, we'll pretend that we're not on the Halloween house tour. Oddly enough, Elm Street is just a block away, too. (laughs) (laughs) It's the neighborhood in L.A. that looks like they could be the Midwest. So because in real life, that neighborhood looks different, I couldn't tell if these were supposed to be the same houses or just similar architecture because it's all in Haddonfield. I can't tell if Michael has any motive behind killing or, hey, there's somebody, I'll kill them. There's somebody else, I'll kill them. It's not like the first movie. Michael was very driven by killing for sex in the first movie. He saw his sister have sex. He killed her. He saw the babysitters have sex. He killed them. And then he went after Lori, just presuming she probably has sex, too, I guess. I got the impression that the house with the woman who's looking out the window who got stabbed through the neck, that was the original Myers house. And she was on the phone with someone warning her that Michael Myers might be out. So I got the impression that Michael went home. What gives you that impression? The setup of the house looks like enough to me like the original house that the little boy Michael when he's looking through the window with his sister and the boyfriend on the couch, and they went, then went upstairs, and you see the empty couch with the pillow on the side, and there's a door frame, and there's a stairwell on the other side of it. I got that impression. I mean, whether or not it's true or not, Arnie, that's the impression I was given. That's why he chose that particular house, is that he went home. He already went to the grave, and then in the original movie, he went home. Yeah, and I think you're right. It does look a lot like that original house, but so did the house where he got his knife from. I mean, I feel like... In some ways, suburbia, you know, they all kind of have that vibe. And I would have had that house demolished and, and, you know, totally rebuilt. I mean, we talked about the difficulty of even at the time renting that house to someone knowing that Judith Myers had died there seemed to be of some difficulty. At any rate, it's just kind of nice to finally have a populated Halloween night. You know, that was kind of my issue rewatching the film. It's Halloween night. There are no trick-or-treaters. There's nobody out. There's no little children. We always complain Camp Crystal Lake never has any little kids. And everyone in Springwood High looks like they're 30. They never want to bring in that child audience. But I got to say, there were little kids in my theater. There were grown people that were bringing five, six, eight-year-olds into this film And they got representation up on screen. I think on some level, it is made for their inclusion. There were kids in the first Halloween, though. It's just like they all go home early because they wanted the streets to be desolate later. But there's a scene here where a boy bumps into Michael and is like, excuse me, sir. That is verbatim from the first one. And I think they also did it in Zombies Remake. They have the little kids bump into Michael and you wonder if he's going to kill a kid. It was very underpopulated in the first movie, is my only point. Yeah, these are callbacks, but I'm feeling like when Michael steps out of that house after killing that woman, he's like, oh, look at all the prey. 
they're all potentially mine. And he seems to just enjoy killing why he decides to go up to that bedroom closet and Vicky just happens to be on the phone with Allison seems to be a coincidence we're just to go with. Yeah, this is the biggest small town ever, right? I mean, the school dance looks really well-funded. They have a great public education system here in Haddonfield. They've got a lot of effects and latex up on that stage. The dance has a lot of people at it. And yet, it just so happens Michael is going to go after the babysitter who's a good friend of the granddaughter of his victim. It's kind of funny, another reversal. The victim is the one that stays at home, you know, like last time being the babysitter kind of safe, Lori, right? Like the fact that she was taking care of kids meant she wasn't hooking up with guys and thus wasn't getting the knife. But here it's going to be Vicky and her love-hate relationship with Julian that becomes the focus. Julian is my favorite original character to this movie. Lori is my favorite character in this movie, but Julian, I just love everything where he's like, you're, oh, you're going to just invite him over and do weed? We're not doing weed. We're doing magic. I'm going to tell my mom. Well, I'll tell her about your browser history. I just <laughs> love this back and forth. And I realized it's being written in shorthand that they're making us like Vicky a little bit more because she finally goes, you are the favorite kid I babysit for. But you know what? It worked. It worked on me to actually like Vicky. Julian is so smart. He's like, there's somebody in my room. Michael comes busting out of the closet. He's like, fuck this. He's gone. My favorite line by Julian is when he tells her to send Dave up first instead of her. <laughs> Yeah, Julian does not care about Dave. Yeah, but again, they're playing with you because her boyfriend has also shown up and he's out looking at a bike. I mean, you'd think he might be the first to go. We aren't quite sure unless you saw the preview. That was the thing that told me it was in the closet because when you watch the trailer, they spoil this jump scare. But they do their best to disguise where Michael is hiding. And I appreciate the effort because at this point, 40 years of slashers, and we've seen most of them, we're ahead of the game usually. And this movie kept me guessing many times. The one thing I also want to note is most of the Halloween movies have had homage to the scene in Carpenter's original, like what you see. And here they're going to pay homage to the ghost and the sheet here because Michael's going to kill Vicky and put the sheet over her. But no nudity in this film. They shied away from that. This is very much a female empowerment film, and they're not going to risk that audience by also giving TNA. Right. Also, Dave's death, he's put up against the wall with the knife, like in the original movie also. So that's also called back. Yeah, I agree. That's the most violent moment in the movie for me. That and the head splat when Sartan gets smashed are the times where like, yeah, if you're a gorehound, you're going to get served here. But Gordon Green, he just likes to tease. I mean, they tease the idea that this character got a tattoo and we've been wondering the whole time, well, what was it of? Well, it was the date that I guess they were going to lose their virginity that night. And so we'd see the tattoo with the corpse. And yet she just says you're going to get dry fucked tonight i'm like it's a joke she's being funny well i get i get that it was funny but i thought she no okay she was, she was being ironic he got a tattoo to get fucked and she said yeah you're gonna get dry fucked ha ha you know danny mcgride is on the script i don't know what parts he wrote as opposed to the other two people that contributed to this but i'm going to guess that he came up with oscar 
Oscar feels like him in high school. I just feel like when we see the nerdy friend that clearly is crushing on Allison and sees an opportunity when Allison and Cameron have that bust up at the dance and is going to show her the shortcut home, this feels like Danny McBride. Oh, this character confused me, honestly, because at the beginning, we're introduced to Allison and Cameron as her boyfriend, but then there's Oscar who kisses Cameron on the head, and I wasn't sure at a certain point if Cameron was dating Allison or if Cameron was dating Oscar and was just Allison's gay friend or if he was pansexual. And I could not tell whose relationship was with who until after Cameron pisses Allison off at the dance. And then, oh, we're going to make up because I'm going to steal your phone and Dip it in this gloop. I have no idea what he put it in. It looked like weird fluff. It was pudding. I thought it was pudding. I'm like, why would they have pudding at a high school dance? <laughs> well, clearly it was not a hit because nobody was over by that punch bowl. <laughs> yeah, I know. I thought it was some kind of like dole whip or something. I don't know. But he throws the phone in it. That's not a good way to end a fight. It's by, you can't leave. I'm going to take your phone and ruin it. And again, I feel like their relationship must be on the cutting room floor. Like a lot of these things, it got shortened. It was implied he didn't like how much she was on the phone and she didn't like his flirtation. All of this is just so that we can get cell phones out of it. It's the bane of every modern horror director is that how do we figure out how they can't get on their cell phone and call for help when they're in the dark place? And so here, because it's thrown in a punch bowl of gloop, we can have her walking home and have no way to call for help. And it must be a couple gens old, though, because every good iPhone and Samsung is pretty waterproof these days. The phone would at least be worth pulling out of the gloop and not just being like, well, I guess that's gone forever. <laughs> I mean, it's not like he threw it in a toilet, but yes, this is where Oscar comes in. And I said I got some flashbacks to Friday the 13th part three. And this kid seemed so shelly to me. Well, you want kills. You got to have some kills. Would it be more shocking if it were Allison? Absolutely. But this movie is not going to touch a Strode unless they're Ray. Like there's no way that the Strode woman is going to come to harm in this. It's all about empowerment. So yeah, we need something to happen here and they want to play with a gimmick. So why not motion control lights on a lawn? I like his death. I like the motion control lights a lot, but if we're going to the whole sin death thing, was his sin that he went in for a kiss and then was embarrassed by it? It's not like he tried to force himself. This isn't little Harvey Weinstein Michael's killing. No, I don't think they're shaming anybody. I think they're actually making very complicated characters for teens at, at any rate. I think that everyone, when you see his death, I think it's supposed to hurt. I think you're supposed to go, oh, Danny McBride, I like him. He deserves better. He would have grown up to be a very funny stand-up comedian. And instead, he's impaled on a fence. The motion control sensor lights, I like the idea that they have this modern convention and how it could be played with, and the fact that this kid thought this was the neighbor giving him crap for crossing against his lawn, even though he's been told before he should not be doing that. All of this completely works for me. The fact that Michael puts him back up on the fence, after he kills him, he puts him on the spoke of the fence. Harsh. Well, it's a very Michael Myers thing. If you think about in the first movie, he hangs bodies upside down, just stuffs them in closets. He just plays with his food, quote unquote, after he kills them. And that is his M.O. It was very difficult to see in a sense, but at the same time, it made a lot of sense for Michael to do it. Why he's pursuing Laurie's granddaughter at this point seems like major coincidence. I don't see how he found his way to the granddaughter of Laurie Strode at this point in the movie and why he's pursuing her so diligently. Yeah, specifically since he had his girl there on the lawn. 
we see Lori pull up to the house where Vicky is babysitting, shooting through, and she's an ace shot. She's going to get him. She shoots him. The only reason why he doesn't go down was it was a mirror reflection. He's coming down there. I think, oh, it's going down right now. And no, he, he's running away. That's disappointing. Yeah, I love that shot. First of all, that is a pistol. And from that distance to get that shot, she should be hired to be a military sharpshooter. But we see her practicing on mannequins. She's really worked with that pistol a lot. And I do love the way that scene is shot, the way that you can see Officer Frank in one window and Michael in the other window and everything that's going down. And then we finally have the kills. So Danny McBride is going to allow us some laughs. Lori spins around with the pistol and hits Frank in the face with it because she's startled. I do think, though, that all of this is just coincidence that it happens to be Allison. The only time things happen intentionally is where Sartain is doing it. And later on, the fact that Michael is going to get to Lori's house as Sartain's doing, that is why Sartain is in the script, is to give us a reason to get that showdown that Michael himself... It just is coincidence that Allison happened to be wandering around while he's killing. Yeah, that's a little disappointing. I don't see any other reason other than pure evil might just have its feelers out and be able to know everyone, who everyone is. And maybe in that way, because I'm evil, I just happen to know all these things. But put it in an asylum, he wouldn't know about the life that Lori was leading at all. And so to be able to find her relatives and hide out with at friends' houses... We just have to write off as coincidences, and it makes the movie less smart, but so be it. It's still a slasher movie, and it's still being told in a very effective way. And this is where I was on to him. Up to this point, I was just thinking, well, you know, maybe he is inadvertently causing all these problems because he's so eager. But once he sees Laurie... And she calls him the new Loomis. I'm like, oh, I bet you this is all his doing. That we're going to find out. I even thought like when Michael gets run over, he would become the new shape because he wanted it so bad. Okay, when Michael gets run over, first I thought it wasn't Michael. I'm like, they're making references to all the Halloween films, including the ones out of continuity. They're doing their little nods. Here, I thought this was the scene right out of Halloween too. I'm like, they just ran over Ben Tramer Jr., it turns out it really is Michael, and I'm like, are they really going to go Friday the 13th Part 5 on us? Is Sartain going to put on that mask and he's our new Michael? Because that would suck. Yeah, would anyone accept that? Brock, if you found out that the climax of this movie was not Michael versus Laurie, but Sartain versus Laurie, that wouldn't fly, right? No, that doesn't make any sense for me. Even as a casual fan of the series, what I want to see is Michael and Laurie, especially since they're building it up to be that. It's the whole point of this movie, is it not? Yeah, so he has to know that Michael can take car hits because he runs up there and says, oh, he's dead, oh, it's so sad, blah, 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 while he's preparing his pen scalpel. And he knows that very much he's just unconscious and must have practiced in the lab on this guy in the past and said, he'll revive in five minutes, and when he does, I'll have thrown him in the backseat of the squad car with Allison, we'll see what he does, and I will drive him to the lorry compound. And that's kind of tense. I mean, that it adds a new dimension. Once I realized that Michael was still alive, I was like, okay, don't change killers on me, and I can go with this twist. 
I so hate Sartain. Have I said that yet? The fact that, oh, I'm going to be the mustache-twirling psychiatrist from all those 60s films. What does it feel like to kill? I'll only know if I kill. And he's like, so that's what it feels like. Wait, didn't you kill somebody on the bus? How did you make the bus crash if you didn't use that little pen thing to kill somebody? And then that Allison is just so obviously playing him. Well, Michael said something to me. What did he say to you? What did he say to you? If you pull over and let me out, I'll tell you, I must know. He said Judith, didn't he? Come on. This guy is such a caricature. He is lesser than the script deserves. If we were in this movie, if we were in the Dr. Sartain movie, I'd go with it because it would all be this over the top. But he is a caricature in the middle of what I consider to be mostly well-written characters. Well, here's what I would ask. What if he wasn't the new Loomis? But the old Lomas, if Donald Pleasance wasn't dead and we found out he had become this guy, that hits you hard. That makes you go, oh, I totally buy this. Wow, that's a powerful transformation. The fact that it's some random character we've never seen before and he's acting this way is disappointing. I absolutely hated it when he put the mask on. But I did like with Allison in the back seat with Michael when he started stirring. Very much enjoyed that tension. So I'll take and leave. I understand the need to have the scene here to get Allison and Michael where they need to be for later in the movie. But I'm agreeing with Arnie. I didn't really care for this character or all this stuff with it. And I just kind of wrote him off. You guys said you suspected he was in on it. I didn't even give him the time of day enough to even try to figure that out. I didn't care. But I do think the criticism that the movie is taking is the same. It resents that people are so curious about serial killer motivations. It absolutely hates and announces in the scene that hates therapy, psychology, anyone that would reduce criminal behavior into a... intellectual dimension. This movie will not do that. It will not show you Michael's face. It will not give you a reason why. It will not give anyone looking for that kind of answer satisfaction. It wants to say, accept him as the boogeyman or you're left out in the cold. And I was feeling a little cold by that. I really did want a new reason to be given. If Lori is not the sister of Michael, which was far-fetched, the way that that was introduced in Halloween 2 was sloppy. But if that isn't the case, I did want there to be some other twist. I did there want there to be some reason why, and there's not going to be. I agree. There's some twists at the end, but the only justification for this film to exist is to give Laurie Strode closure. And once we finally focus on Laurie here at the end, once Michael kills Sartain in like a trash compactor, I'm going to crush you with the car seat. And then I'm going to just leave Allison. Allison's fine. I've been killing people indiscriminately all night, but uh, you know, killing Sartain took it out of me. Allison, you go for a run. I thought that was interesting. I mean, that's a psychological reveal. We'd give him the choice of killing the beautiful girl He would prefer to kill the therapist that he's had to sit there and listen to for decades. That at least tells me something about priorities with him. Once Sartain is out of the picture, and I understand, hey, the whole point of this was just to use Sartain to get Michael to Lori's house. And Lori has lived in this compound the whole time with the safe room that's ingeniously under her kitchen island. I mean, I actually really love the garage door opener kitchen island, and I just redid my kitchen. I'm like, why didn't I think of that? (laughs) It's like the bat poles. You go down to the basement. It's probably healthy that you didn't think I need a panic room in the basement. (laughs) 
So this is where the movie really, I've enjoyed it so far. I've rolled my eyes at a couple of things, but I've enjoyed most of the kills, most of the high school stuff. But here, the movie finally just has a great crescendo and comes together. And speaking of crescendo, Carpenter's music is so fitting for this too. It harkens back to the old theme. It's John Carpenter and his son and somebody else. And I think they did a really good job bringing the feel of the original score back. Well, it is mostly the original score, except like instead of piano, we get an electric guitar or they have a dance beat under it sometimes. I mean, I didn't think that it was a radical reshift. And I thought mostly they just wanted Carpenter to quote unquote, give a new score so they could promote him with the film. They want him to give it his blessing because they are trying to be a continuation of the movie that he made. But what has happened, we all knew it would lead to this complex, but with Michael being dropped off, eh, I would say about 200 feet away, he's now free to make his way inside and attack two generations of Strode. Karen and her husband, Ray, were moved to this house under police watch. Interesting choice. Instead of moving them to a jail or out of town, they said, the safest place for you is the crazy Lori's place. She is the best place to hide from Michael. And so they don't go to that panic room. The interesting choice is Ray is upstairs playing with a yo-yo and says, hey, what's all these lights on in the yard? And goes walking out to see what the security detail is doing and finds a homemade jack-o'-lantern. I got to tell you that visual with that jack-o'-lantern with the flashlight with the cop's head, for me, even more than the woman in the window, that visual is the one that's really haunting me. That is like a creepy, disgusting, but at the same time, amazingly cool visual. Oh, I loved that, you know, because it's hard. There have been so many slasher films. How do you do something that's unique? And you had these two silly cops reminding me of like Beverly Hills Cop where they're sitting out there talking about the sandwiches and the peanut butter and jelly. And hey, banh mi is awesome. I've never had peanut butter and jelly banh mi. But yeah, <laughs> I, I'm with the cop on that one. You see through the window and all you can see is a jack-o'-lantern. And I'm like, oh, there's a jack-o'-lantern in there and maybe a dead body. Yeah, that is a flashlight shoved up the neck of the guy and the light's coming out. Oh, so cool. And nobody cares about Ray. I mean, if you're a man in this, you're a boogeyman or you're useless. Get out of the way. And so that he dies doesn't even seem to bother Karen that much. She's, I'm married to him and I don't even care. This guy is an idiot. He talks about not having even, what, a high school education. He wasn't a good student. I don't know if he is Allison's actual father. He feels like he might be the second or third husband himself. The way nobody cares about him. And yeah, he disappears and is killed. Allison never once goes, where's dad and Karen never once goes where's my husband he's killed and quickly forgotten and not a tear is shed again you could have done this a little bit better clean it up have Karen also have some problems that her mother passed down to her maybe she can't stay married maybe she's a single mom I know what they're going for here. I do not think they totally get there and you unifying the discord between the three generations. They want to create Michael as the thing that unifies these three women that have not been on the same page. The fact that Allison comes in and they all have to participate in this game of hide under the kitchen island. Again, it's Jamie Lee Curtis's movie. I really don't need them here. 
They should have done what they did in the first movie and in H2O. She should have hid those two in the closet and gone out to fight Michael. And she does for a good portion here. There is a wonderful showdown. If you've waited 40 years for Lori to get her comeuppance with Michael, blowing his fingers off with a shotgun, he pushes her out a window, and then he's distracted. He looks back. She's gone. She is now the hunter. They do the sound of that. You know, like, it's the same thing that how they ended with that first Halloween. The fact that she's off the lot. It made people laugh is what it allowed them to do. They were tense and now they're laughing because she's every bit as scary in her own way as Michael is. And Michael ought to be afraid when he's heading back downstairs. Yeah, we did get our one-on-one and how Lori, even though how much she is prepared, you can't prepare for this kind of strength, evil, or whatever Michael has, right? So she did everything she possibly could, or, or at least she thought so. Yeah, she is so Sarah Connor. I love that her safe room, it has this metal shed door and behind it is nothing but a bunch of guns and she arms her daughter and arms her granddaughter. And I love Jamie Lee Curtis here, this crazy militant huntress. The thing with Kate, though, that got me is she became mama bear, right? And that's kind of a movie trope is the woman is all afraid until she has to protect her cub. And then she turns into the mama bear and she's going to shoot Michael in the eye. How does Michael know to lift the island up? I watched that part twice. I went to another theater and watched that part again. How does he know to lift the island up for that safe room? Because he was shot from the floor. Because something bullet came up and shot him at one point when he was milling around the kitchen. But why the island? I'd be looking for where's the basement door. I, my instinct is not, and admittedly, I'm not a supernatural killer, but my instinct is not immediately, I must move this kitchen island because it is out of place. Well, maybe he just didn't like the feng shui. <laughs> I didn't like when Lori shot through the floor. When she thought through the floor, I'm like, why would you give away your position like that? And then, obviously, as the movie goes on, you figure out why. She wants him to go down there. But I agree, it kind of seemed weird that he knew exactly how to enter it, versus I know how he figured out they were down there, but how did he know the island was the secret is still a mystery to me. Yeah, when she shoots through the floorboards, first of all, what? There's no insulation, there's no, those are just boards that you could look through with cracks. It's almost like she lives in a cottage instead of a house, but I thought he would get into that basement by ripping up the floorboards after she does that shot. I thought he'd use that as a finger hold and rip his way down there like a monster. I didn't picture him flipping the table over and getting down that way. My problem is a little bit more thematic. I felt like the movie was telling me that Lori had lost her life that first Halloween night and that she was just a ghost of herself. My sense was that she needed to die with Michael, that she was going to close those cages. It was a trap for him, but one that she was going to be inside as well. And that maybe... You know, when she says to her daughter, I'm sorry I raised you this way, she could be doing it on the other side of the bars. That, to me, would mean something, that she gave up something to protect her kids, and it wouldn't make her look so right. By doing it this way, it just goes to show, oh, you shrinks, you're so stupid. Everyone needs to go get their guns and be ready for the apocalypse. Oh, you know what you just said clicked for me, and I've been wondering about this. I'd read an interview with McBride and then another one with Curtis, And they said that this film is very big for the Me Too era and very much in that vein. Now I see it. Michael is the abuser. I mean, let's look at the recent Brett Kavanaugh scenario. Whether or not you believe whatever side you believe, what you have is a woman bringing up a 
assault from 40 years ago. Here we have Laurie Strode as the assaulted, who, much like so many women are speaking about in our national discourse right now, they can't get past it. And so here she's able to get past it by taking power and becoming whole again through this. The theme of the movie is that. The theme of the movie is the assaulted woman coming out of that. If you kill her, you undermine what they're actually going for. Certainly when you frame it that way, that is a way of looking at this movie, and that does make it timely. And it's not like I would advocate, oh, please kill Jamie Lee Curtis. That is not something I want to see. The note that feels really false for me at the end is when Judy Greer fakes the cry and then gets a shot on Michael. That It would mean more if maybe she rescued her mom. That I would believe she would do, but that she has any stake in fighting Michael or gets to make her mom proud by shooting him between the eyes. I know what they were trying for, and I agree. This movie should be hitting those notes. That is exciting to see, that kind of vindication. There's just something about the calibration here that feels off. I do agree. I did not like that scene, but I just thought it was my problem with Judy Greer being Judy Greer, and I never believed her. I never believed her animosity. I never, when Laurie Strode shows up at her house and Judy Greer kicks her out, she goes, I choose to believe the world is a positive place and not an ugly place the way you see it. I just, I never buy her. She never comes off to me like John Connor did in Terminator 2, where he was kind of fucked up because his mother was fucked up and drove him down to Mexico and taught him all these gun things. She seems far too suburban and calm to make me believe that she was raised by basically a militia for the first few years of her life. And no matter how much deprogramming she had, that then this comes at the end rings terribly false. I would have preferred it if it skipped a generation. I would have liked to have seen grandma and granddaughter protecting Judy Greer from Michael because Judy Greer didn't believe. I don't want Judy Greer dead in this film. I want the three Strodes to make it out alive, but I wish it was Allison who took that shot. I buy it a little more than you two do. I did enjoy the moment. I think it played pretty well. I think Julie Greer played it very well. In fact, I really got a bit of a stir when she got all serious and had the dead eye shot. I do see more, though, of a daughter who was brought up a certain way and has taken great pains to have a normal life. And so I'm getting that character more with her family, with her daughter, and how her daughter has no training whatsoever, Arnie. So she is completely trying to put that behind her because she does not believe her mother or wants her mother to get over things. Everything you both are saying, I agree with. I think it played better for me. I was able to go along with it more, but clearly it needed to be done a different way so the point could get across stronger than what we got. Yeah, and I just hate the fact that ultimately it just vindicates the mentality that, no, you all need to have guns. She was so stupid for marrying Ray and being a psychologist, she should have been in the cage with her mom all those years. That doesn't sit well with me. I don't know that I read it that way so much as, yes, Laurie Strode picked a bunch of guns. I don't think she necessarily wants her daughter to live in the same kind of cage she does with guns everywhere, but be aware. Know what dangers are out there. Whatever level of protection you take, take some. I mean, when Michael Myers broke out and Lori went, is like, I'm taking you all to my house. And the daughter said, no, that's not an NRA pro statement. That's just, you're being stupid. Yeah, no, again, it's an interesting conflict that she was airing too much on the side of being open, but 
All I'm saying is, I really want to be with the movie here in the end, and I feel like maybe I didn't get everything that I wanted as they ride away in a pickup truck, and I'm thinking about Texas Chainsaw, right? This is obviously a callback to the way that Sally got away from Leatherface by jumping on the back of some random pickup truck. I noticed that Lori is bleeding, and so when they have that sequel, they could make the case... She didn't survive this night. I don't know if Jamie Lee Curtis is coming back, but I do know that they wanted to end on a note of triumph for the Strode women. And that note is also represented with that house engulfed in flames. First of all, I do not want to live in any house that has natural gas pipes at the ready to start leaking. My biggest fear in living in a house that uses natural gas is a natural gas explosion. Anyway, I may have watched Lethal Weapon too often as a kid, but I can't imagine that. And did you guys notice she had this like Nightmare on Elm Street replica of the house where she babysat and we get to see it burn too? And it was not small. It was definitely way bigger than I would have liked in my house to have a prop. Yeah, and they showed it to us two or three times. And so when they actually show it burning down, there's that symbolism again. But yes, it was kind of strange that it was there to begin with. Yeah, I'd like to believe, and I think they want us to believe, that Laurie, by burning all of this down, is heading off to a life without Michael. But if there's sequels, and he didn't burn in that house, and Jamie Lee Curtis doesn't want to come back, then all of this is going to be undermined. Yeah, but we'll talk about where it's going to go in just a little bit. Let's talk about where it's been. So, Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend Halloween? Stuart. Maybe I was expecting a little too much. I was so excited for this movie. I couldn't wait for it to come back. And knowing all the good buzz and seeing all the trailers and just thinking it looks great. It's got Jamie Lee. It's got this director that's known for art movies. I think that I really believe that it was going to be some monumental step forward for the genre itself. And that's where I got tripped up. It is a very good slasher. It's very entertaining. It's very clever. It has lots of creative kills, and you're going to have a good time. But it doesn't do anything different that any other slasher movie you've ever seen does it before. We've talked about elevated horror and movies that take a psychological dimension and explore things. They're more focused on motives. This is not this movie. In fact, that movie is going to punish anyone that wants motives for why Michael is Michael will be slapped in the face and told he's the boogeyman. There is no other explanation to know, and you just need to sit back and enjoy the movie for what it is. I was able to do that more the second viewing. I was a little disappointed when I saw it. When I was leaving, I heard someone grumble, you know, I could have waited and seen it on Netflix. And I'm like, yeah, I kind of feel that. And with some reflection, coming back with my mom, who also did enjoy it and also got scared. And I got to see that woman again from 40 years ago. Yeah, I would say lower your expectations and have a really good time at a slasher film. And it's a solid recommend. Arnie. It is a solid recommend. And I think it's probably the third best Halloween film made. And yet all three of the best Halloween films made are entitled Halloween. And of the three, Zombies remake, Carpenter's original and this, I find it to be the least. I find it to be the one that I probably will return to the least. It doesn't have a whole lot that grips me and makes me go, this is something I want to rewatch the way zombies had the shock factor and the origin story. And yes, motivation for Michael Myers. 
And Carpenter's original just has that classic factor. But this movie has a lot going for it. It does have a body count that should appease people who are like Cameron in the scene going, he just killed four people. What's the big deal? It has inventive kills. It has shocks that we are all here at this point. I've seen a lot of horror, Stuart, you and I especially. And there's things I didn't see coming in this movie. Mm -hmm. I really love the performance of Jamie Lee Curtis in this film. She owns the screen when she's on it, so when she's not on it, I miss her so much more, even though I realize that was the intent of the film, was to focus on the next generation. The movie does so much right, and yet the movie does some really stupid things too, and some of it isn't stupid so much as... It asks questions with no answers, like, how did Michael end up at Vicky's? And was that house Michael went into with the telephone call a house he'd been in before? And does Michael sniff somehow that Allison is a relative of his nemesis? And then, yeah, anything with that shrink is just so trite and dumb. And I actively dislike that stuff, but for a Halloween movie, and they've rebooted it for a reason. It has not had very many good sequels, but for a Halloween movie, this is a triumph and a solid recommend. And I say, yeah, I loved seeing it in theaters, in the dark room, with the people and the reaction, and just being engrossed in a way that I don't get when I'm watching something more casually at home with the lights on. I also recommend this movie. I had a great time. I think part of my having such a great time was being in a theater full of people who wanted to be there and to be scared. People who were cheering when Michael Myers put the mask on, when he went to the neighborhood, when the music came on, the iconic music. I was in the right situation to see this movie for sure. But the longer I think about this movie, I like it less and less in my mind. It's not that I hate it. It's just that I'm seeing all the tropes and I'm kind of feeling like that whole I've seen this movie before thing is coming over me. Yes, it's entertaining to watch. Yes, they're doing a great homage stuff. Yes, they're setting it up for future generations. But with those three generations fighting Michael Myers and putting a nice little button at the end of this movie and how it's a nice bookend to the other original movie, I really don't want sequels. I really don't. I see the box office. It's going to be very hard for them not to make a sequel. I would love it to, st to end here. And I thought it was a nice way to end Laurie Strode's story. So it's a recommend, but it's not the world's greatest movie. It succeeds much more than it doesn't. I would check it out. I would seriously suggest, though, watch the original Halloween movie to get a little bit more out of it, if you're so inclined. Yeah, and you do you guys agree with me that you were expecting something that was going to innovate? I mean, we've seen the slasher genre, like that first screen movie or the remake of Maniac. It follows. I feel like every now and then there's a new slasher or a new take on a slasher that does indeed elevate it. This is just another one. Like in some ways, I'm not even sure it's even better than Halloween 2. I'd say it's probably around on par with Halloween 2. Especially since in Halloween 2, we spend so much time stalking people we don't care about in the hospital. The same way we hear we stalk a lot of teenagers we don't really know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the difference is, I never went in with the expectation of innovation. I never did. I went with the expectation of resurrection and bringing back some quality. But mm -hmm. I never expected it to break ground the way the original Halloween did. It's called Halloween. Carpenter is involved. I expected it to be 
almost a, a remake of that original. I did not expect it to become a revolutionary new film. And that probably has a lot to do with me knowing David Gordon Green as an art film director of 18 years ago and not knowing what he really was going to do with the property. Right. And I'm with you, Brock, too, for sure, about I just kind of want this to stop. If the idea was to resurrect and have us hungry for more Michael, that isn't at all how I leave this theater. I am happy to see a button put on and say, that is done. I am not eager to say, oh, good, now we can have one every year. And I'm really worried because it's Blumhouse. If it was any other studio and I saw this money, I'd say, well, we're getting a sequel. Although it didn't work out so well for Friday the 13th, which also had a huge opening weekend. Let's remember Friday the 13th reboot got 55 million and it never got off the board for part two. Yeah, but this feels different. And they've already said we are developing part two that David Gordon Green even had an idea for a trilogy. It has always been part of the conception of bringing it back to bring it back for a long period of time. The problem is, how do you top Jamie Lee Curtis coming back to it? The only thing I could think of was that we know David Gordon Green is going off and doing a remake of Friday Night Lights. If they brought back Carpenter into the director's chair, that excites me on the same level. Otherwise, no. And the other thing that would excite me, the thing that I'm praying, is have the shape take a new form. Michael is done. Lori needs to have killed Michael, and the shape can come back as something else. Did you guys stay for the end of the end credits? Well, there was breathing. Yeah. Yeah, I was told there was an extra scene at the end, like a Marvel movie. I must have misread the headline or the article, because it was just uh, a lot of breathing. But then again, Arnie, we had Darth Vader breathing at the end of Phantom Menace. Yeah, and he came back. I guess, I guess so. If we had Darth Vader breathing at the end of The Force Awakens, you'd have a point there. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess, I guess. <laughs> I think that you almost have to Halloween to it. You gotta keep all three. They said, one thing I read is sequel options were required for contracts. They might have Jamie Lee under contract for another one. They probably have Andy Matchick and probably Judy Greer under contract for another one. So... I think you've got to find something new to do with that trio and with Michael. And what that is, I couldn't tell you. They've done so much with Michael. I mean, druid cults and <laughs> everything else. Michael never says anything. So when will he have something new to say? You know what I mean? It is what it is. Can they just keep it inventive? If they can keep fun kills like they had here with that POV trick, I'll probably still enjoy them, but I'm never going to look forward to another one of the sequels as I look forward to Jamie Lee Curtis back in the fright wig for 40 years. If Laurie didn't kill Michael here, this movie means nothing. Well, it very well may be nothing. The whole point has to be that she puts Michael to bed. So the thing that I advocate is when it comes back, it's a new shape. I hope you're right, Stuart. I really do. But they tried the anthology thing in the Halloween 3, and that didn't go over in, what, 1982? Well, I didn't say put fucking Stonehenge in the mask. <laughs> <laughs> and it's Malika Cod. It will never not be Michael. In the meantime, before we get that sequel, we have other movies here at Now Playing that we're going to be watching. This Friday, for Platinum Donors, Terror Train, the third Jamie Lee Curtis horror film of 1980. 
And the final one. It is the last of our Platinum level. If you can donate at that level, you're going to hear all our thoughts on Prom Night, which was a big one for her, and The Fog, which is a early and enjoyable John Carpenter movie. So a fun trilogy and a good year for her to establish herself as the Scream Queen as she comes back 40 years later to be a Scream Queen once again. And a quick programming note, you may have noticed if you subscribe to our podcast through an RSS feed, you didn't get a preview of Prom Night. I've heard your feedback loud and clear. People don't want previews on the feeds. So if you were somebody who did enjoy hearing those previews and getting an idea of what the conversation was, you're going to have to come to our website, nowplayingpodcast.com, because we've received some very strong feedback about feeds having the promos in them so when we do that it will be done very few very far between but the previews will still be up at our website so if you'd like to hear a preview of prom night or the fog they're up now and this friday a preview of terror train will be at nowplayingpodcast.com but hopefully you're hearing the whole show thank you to everyone who's donated thank you to all of our patrons we really do thank you all as we go to theaters again and again and do bonus shows there might be a bonus show coming up Yeah, we said that our Halloween show was going back to the cornfield. God forbid, as we wait for Michael to return to Haddonfield, we're going back to Gatlin, Nebraska to go to Park 10, Children of the Corn Runaway, next Tuesday. But yes, we decided that... For Wednesday, the actual day of Halloween, we're going to throw you an extra surprise there. You're going to have to wait and see what it is. But I think it's going to be a treat. I don't think it will be a trick for most people. Sounds terrific. (laughs) So thank you both for joining me today. I'm very happy we got this chance to talk again about Halloween. Thank you again for listening to Now Playing. Talk to you soon. As a matter of fact, it was. Thank you for joining us for this installment of Now Playing's Halloween Retrospective. It's all over, my friends. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can listen to the other installments as well as hundreds of other horror movie reviews at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Find reviews of Friday the 13th, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Star Trek, Leprechaun, The Avengers, and more. Now Playing Podcast is a production of Venganza Media Incorporated. Copyright 2018. All rights reserved. Venganza Media is not affiliated with, and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. All movie clips and music used in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed, and the Now Playing trademark may not be used without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. No, you can have peanut butter on your penis. That's okay. What? Somebody should. Well, then why, why, why well, would you ask well, me? Well, shit, then I will do it. I mean, no, I mean I'll do it. it. I'll do it. Oh. If I was I was going to say something about the, not believing in the boogeyman or something like that. If you, I would be happy to say the penis if you're not going to do it.
Oh, think, yeah, I'm not going to do. I peanuts. have no line. So if you need me, someone must do peanut butter on the. On, I will do I peanut butter pussy. on my right. penis. I will take. <laughs> I will take. I will take. I'm seat. making it you weirder. You know that could cause a ye- yeah. yeast infection. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's it's I, I did not know that. I'll I read it in that. goop. <laughs> <laughs> What's his name? The good actor who sucks. Malcolm McDowell. Thank you.